Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Utah Film Pod. You just got two of us this time. This is uh, Josh Terry. I'll be your host, and I will be co-hosted by Mr. Mark LaRocco, back in the chair, enjoying yes. the uh, end of summer. But uh, once again, we are one Danny short. She's got some stuff going on and had to step aside for this episode, so we will look forward to her rejoining us uh, shortly. In fact, uh, I think she's going to have some news when she does come back, uh, something maybe we'll kind of touch on, hint on a little bit later on. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, Mark, it's August. I mean, I know that you got that traditional full-time job thing going on, and so maybe maybe August isn't what it, you know, it is for us who are kind of tied to the whole school thing. But I don't know. Yeah. How, well, how, how's how's the end of summer treating you? I mean, the end of summer has been fine. We get the to uh, to put the kids back in school, so that's always a nice time. Right, and right. I've started a new tradition just this year where I take the day off work. Uh, the day before school starts to kind of hang out with the kids and oh, that's fun. spend one final summer day just with them all day. So we had, we had fun we, that was last Tuesday cause we started on Wednesday. So yeah, we're, we're, you know, we're in it now we're in so, school. And so do yeah. you guys do the now honored tradition of, of photographing each of your children on the doorstep on their first day of school and post yeah. it to Facebook? Cause I, I didn't notice. Oh. If Holly does post, that. I, might have I, it. I don't think she did the one where you make a sign with little letters. Uh-huh. I know we've done that in the past, but I don't think we did that this time. It was just a picture of them, you know, the three of my three my three oldest boys separately, and then all together, and they're in fifth, third, and second grades. So yeah, we didn't. She didn't go so far as to do a sign. And yeah, yeah, nice, but. nice. Oh, I I have always had especially as a kid and, and now a little bit as an adult as well, since I'm working in the education field. But uh, I've always kind of had these mixed feelings about August because mm-hmm. technically it's a summer month, right? And so when you get to August, technically you're still in summer vacation, but it's not a complete month, right? At least, yeah. I mean, because I, I know that some districts in different places won't start school until like after Labor Day, but, you know, Growing up, and, and as far as I know now, I think everybody's pretty much starting like the last week of August or last week and a half before August ends. And so yeah. I always kind of felt like, oh, now that August is here, even though it's still maybe like three weeks away, the specter of school is still kind of looming. Mm-hmm. And, and so I don't I don't get to enjoy the idea that August is like this complete month of, of a break that it's – and of course, you know, when I'm teaching summer well, school, it doesn't really matter, but yeah. still – but but even for regular school, I, I saw some people on Facebook. I think one of Holly's friends in Arizona, they started on August 1st or 2nd. Really? They started very early. Yeah. That's awful. Most of the Utah people, it's like the 17th, 18th, around there. Some of them are later, you know, like yeah. 23rd, 24th. But yeah, normally it's in that teens, the teens yeah. of August, the yeah, Ides of August. We were, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to start my classes until uh, Monday the 29th. Oh, so yeah, so we're we're pretty late. Um, I mean, Weber State's schedule seems to be a little bit different in a lot of ways because um, our spring break always seems to come quite early. Um, yeah, because whenever I'm taken off out of town during spring break, it's it just feels like it's barely the beginning of March, um, which is fine because you know that means there's less crowds and stuff. But but at the same time, that also means that uh, summer movie season, all the all that kind of traditional stuff is wrapping up and you know, we, we talked before about how the idea about the idea that there's not a whole lot of really pressing releases that are 
out there to get excited about. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. a couple of the movies that we would normally cover, uh, they didn't actually have press screenings for them. And so uh, Bullet Train, I know, was one that I was kind of curious about. And, and uh, they didn't have a press screening for that one. And they also didn't cover Beast in, in Utah uh, for the mm. press critics. And so so uh, that one I have not seen. Um, and of course, I realize I have to, I have to be completely transparent here and, and, and say that... Uh, I obviously could go and see them once they're released, mm-hmm. but my yeah. motivation, I, mm. let's just say there are a lot of inter- interlocking. There's a lot of complex factors here, uh, namely the fact that I've been wrapping up a summer semester and just got back from a week long trip just to uh, ah. kind of enjoy the break. But, uh, um, so well, in terms is, of the new releases, not a whole lot to cover or to, to I talk mean, about. It's kind of a doldrums right now, surprisingly, because, yeah, you know, Top Gun, sort of like what Spider Man, uh, in what's that one called, No Way Home in December, yeah. sort of reignited the box office in December. Top Gun did that in May, all the way through June and July, um, and you know, Doctor Strange two and Thor and a few other mm-hmm. movies did well, like the Batman, you know, throughout the year. But like Top Gun was is far and away the the money winner this year. Sure, and um, at least until then, Avatar, right? Avatar and nah. Wakanda, yeah, we'll see. So, like, um, but but I heard the I heard the other day, or maybe it was today, that we are in a period of time all the way from basically the end of July until possibly October, where we won't see any single movie make twenty five million at the box office in any yeah. weekend. There's just yeah. going to be a lot of little smaller releases that uh, aren't going to excite too many people. So that yeah, wouldn't I mean, surprise I'll, me. That yeah. wouldn't surprise me because, and like we've said, I mean, I think that that's more or less kind of traditional. I mean, well, not traditional in a in the sense of a tradition, but just typically the pattern is, you know, especially in, in the last, I don't know, say 10, 15 years as a lot of the mm-hmm. big Marvel movies have been released, like even in April, right? It seems like the summer, there's such a jump on the summer movie season that it's really more of April, May, June. Mm-hmm more than June, July, August. And so so I think that we've kind of gotten away from the idea that there's going to be anything substantial, unless it's kind of a sleeper hit that's going to come yeah. between now and, like you say, between now it, and the holidays. Right. It would have to be like an unexpected hit, you know, yeah. like Dragon Ball Super Superhero <laughs> right. or whatever it's called right. that just made $20 million. Yeah. But, yeah. but I, I mean, as far as just from this time period where there's not a single movie even a movie that's already come out, like say in July or June, that's that's continuing to have a great late summer surge. Mm-hmm. I think I heard the last time that this happened was in 2007. So oh, normally wow. there's at least one or two movies that kind of rise above the rest, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 have some good box office receipts. But but that's also who knows. I mean, we're we're still recording in August. Something could come out in September that'll sure. Just, you know, well, it'll I do mean, well. For the sake of giving giving people some options, um, uh, last night while I was uh, in a, in a hotel in Twin Falls, I just I took a trip up the Oregon coast and mm-hmm. uh, was on my way back over the last couple of days, and I decided to uh, pop on Netflix on my laptop and see what was going on, and I finally decided to break down and see this. Uh, it's called the Day Shift. Um, mm-hmm. I believe it's the number one uh, download. Uh, number one movie on Netflix right now. Uh, it's been out for a couple of weeks, but I just hadn't, you know, uh, hadn't quite caught my eye. And I, 
decided to give it a whirl last night. And so um, it was actually kind of fun. It's uh, it's kind of this. I mean, there's there's definitely kind of a a campy kind of a B movie vibe about it. It's a it, it's essentially a an action vampire horror comedy. Um, Jamie Foxx plays a vampire hunter, and he he his day his day job cover is as a pool cleaner, and but what he's really doing is he's tracking down uh, vampires in you know Southern California. And so it's uh, the day shift is, you know, he's trying to to hunt vampires during the day. Um, and it's just just kind of this goofy kind of fun action horror. Like I because it's vampires, I ha- I feel like I need to say horror, but it's really not a scary movie at all. It's really more just kind of fun. And there's some kind of crazy action and there's a lot of, you know, stunts and stuff, because whenever he confronts the, the vampires are kind of bouncing off the walls and doing all kinds of weird bendy calisthenics and all this kind of stuff but uh no it was a it was kind of a pleasant surprise like i i sort i wouldn't put it up there as any kind of a great movie um but in terms of you know just something kind of kind of fun if you want to look for something new now um because of the nature of the the subject matter there's there's a a little bit of uh r-rated profanity but mostly it's it would draw an r rating for for the violence which is how to describe it it's graphic, but it's also kind of cartoonish. Like it's it's very mm-hmm. obviously not realistic because you know he's shooting and maiming vampires, and so it's 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 very stylized, I guess is what I would say. Um, mm-hmm. But but it would it would draw the R rating, and so so people should be aware of that. But there's really nothing else in in terms of uh, sexual content or anything like that. It's uh, and like I said, even even the R rated language was pretty uh, pretty sparse. So. Yeah. Uh, for the, for those interested and those of you who just have to have something new and, and something that might be kind of a campy fit for the end of summer. Uh, I was, I was pleasantly surprised. It, it hasn't gotten the best reviews elsewhere. And so going into, I think I was you know, going into it. I was a little, oh, am I going to, you know, maybe I'll watch this for a half hour and see how it goes, but it was, it was actually pretty fun. So I have okay. to give, it, give it credit. So just, just for the sake of giving you something new to think about nothing, something new to consider. Um, that one's out there. I don't know. Have you have you seen anything I, I, recently? I haven't seen anything lately, but I, I do wanted to point out that one the critic from the LA Times, he said that uh, the day shift is more like 2022's best horror buddy cop cartel drama bounty hunter martial arts action comedy so far. So I, I would like I would that. agree. I would agree. <laughs> he I uses about concur. ten hyphens. <laughs> <laughs> you know. You know. Actually, I think one of the most memorable kind of quirky things about it and and I, I don't know I mean I, I had heard it described as kind of a b-movie before I watched it um, and so maybe I kind of got this in the back of my head but I noticed that so so you got Jamie Fox is playing the main uh, you know the main hero and uh, one of the other vampire hunters is um, is played by Snoop Dogg and then Dave Franco plays kind of Jamie Fox's assistant union rep who kind of gets carried along for the ride and and those are really kind of the only recognizable actors they're they're the rest of the cast and this is the, this is what i found kind of interesting i kept seeing people like like actors in in supporting roles who reminded me of other more famous actors and so mm. it almost kind of felt like 
you know, whereas if this was a kind of a big production Hollywood feature, the, they would have gotten the recognizable a list or B list actors, mm -hmm. but instead, because this is just kind of straight to Netflix and it's just meant to be kind of, just kind of a campy, you know, kind of a fun throwaway horror movie, horror comedy, jujitsu, whatever. Right. Um, <laughs> they, they wound up getting lookalikes, which I don't know. I, I maybe that might be kind of too rude to say. I, I don't want to be that dismissive of them. I mean, the performances were fine. It's just, I would, I would see somebody and, and I would think, huh, well, that guy kind of looks like John Bernthal, but it's not John Bernthal. Or or mm. that guy looks kind of like Jason Momoa, but it's not Jason Momoa. Or that guy kind of looks like Mads Mikkelsen, but it's not, you know. And so you kind of oh, get this, okay. you know. Now, now uh, Peter Stamare, is, uh, he's in it, and he's great. Mm. And so, like yeah. I say, there, there are a handful of recognizable people, but then more often than not, in fact, uh, is it Zoe Dutch, the... Um, the actress who was in the second uh, Zombieland, she's been in a few other things. the The main villain oh. in Day Shift looks like her, and so oh, so okay. in my mind, I'm watching the movie and I'm like imagining the other the other actors because they just look so darn similar. Because normally I would never do this. This is ever the this is like the first time I've ever kind of had this experience where I'm watching it and thinking, well, this is really strange because those two guys look like they're trying to look like Jason Momoa and John Bernthal, but they're not. They're other mm. guys, but they look really, I, I can very easily picture them. And like I said, the same thing with kind of like the lead uh, villain vampire and, and stuff. But anyway, uh, so maybe that's kind of something else you can do if you watch the movie is you can just kind of imagine, you can recast it in your mind as you, uh, as you watch it and uh, watch all of the vampire gymnastic fights. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Yeah, may I may have to check that one. Check yeah. it out. Now, now another uh, another movie that uh, see this this one I feel bad about because this was just a very limited engagement, and so I can't recommend this as an option because the time has already passed. However, uh, it was such a great experience. I can talk. I can just certainly justify talking about it. But also, I believe this is something that's going to be happening with other films in the very near future. Um, so I think I might have mentioned to you, you know, offline that uh, about well, about a week and a half, two weeks ago now, uh, I took uh, two of my nieces to see E.T. At mm. uh, So it's, uh, believe it or not, and, and anybody listening to this, you know, if you're old enough, this will kind of blow your mind. But uh, E.T. is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. It was 1982 yes. when that movie came out. And... So as part of the 40th anniversary, they've been doing these special showings on IMAX. Um, I don't believe, uh, at least you know where, where I saw it, I believe it was just supposed to be like that day was the only, the only special showing. Um, so I don't think it's going to be a, a more lengthy engagement. Uh, but I do think that there are going to be other other movies that are going to be doing this. In fact, I think you and I have already talked about uh, uh, Star Trek Two is going to be mm -hmm. featured um, sometime next month. Okay. But uh, but holy cow. Um, E.T. is a fantastic movie on its own and probably one of my all-time favorite movies, if I'm really being honest with myself. But seeing it in IMAX was just incredible. It was wow. such a cool experience and you know, very much enhanced by the fact that I was able to bring a couple of my nieces who, were, who had seen the movie before, but they were quite a bit younger. And so I think that 
even though it is a kids, you know, it is a movie for children in, in many ways, I think that to really appreciate it, you have to be a little bit older, you mm -hmm. know, not like, like three years old. Right. And so, yeah. um, so seeing it with the two of them was just really, really wonderful, but then just kind of seeing it at that scope, um, you know, cause we saw, we saw it in an IMAX theater, uh, up here in Davis County and, uh, at the, the Centerville Megaplex, um, Legacy Crossing, I think is what it's called. And, uh, yeah, just, uh, try to find the best position possible, you know, so it's, mm -hmm. cause I don't like to be way up at the back, especially when it's an IMAX, because I think IMAX is supposed to be kind of big and overwhelming and, you know, larger than life and all that kind of thing. And, uh, I mean, just, you really recognize the power of the John Williams score, right? Referencing mm -hmm. kind of what we were talking about in, I can't remember if it was the last episode or the episode before that. It's been a little while, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. but, uh, the score was incredible. The performances, I mean, there have been a lot of movies that have made me think that the less dialogue you get from child actors, the better as a general rule. But mm -hmm. in E.T., they're just, they're great. Uh, Henry Thomas has such a great job as, as Elliot. Um, and then, so, so if you remember, they did a new version of E.T. a few years ago where they updated the character with a CGI uh, flashlight. Well, just there was that too, right? Yeah. They changed the guns to flashlights because mm -hmm. when the when the cops are when the federal agents are chasing the kids, they didn't think that they should have guns. Um, but they also there were several scenes where they actually changed E.T. into a CGI character, and all of this, as far as I could tell. Um, this version was the straight up original version of ET. I didn't notice oh. any changes or, or additions or, or alter, you know, alterations or anything. And it was great. It was yeah. such a powerful, such an emotionally, you know, gripping, gripping movie. I mean, do you, how, how long has it been since you've seen it? So we, I, I love the movie too. We bought it, um, probably six, seven, eight years ago. Cause I wanted the kids to see it. Yeah, and um, and they liked it, and they I, I don't think it's one that they love, but they they liked it, and they were drawn yeah. in. I, I do remember one of my sons, I think he was too young. I think he was three or four, and we asked yeah. him what, what he thought of ET, and he's his exact words were, "I hate the alien of it." <laughs> and so Holly and I always kind of make fun of that. It's almost like an inside joke, you know. I hate the alien of it, and so um, yeah, it's good to be a little bit older, but it's kind of funny that you. Well, I love that you took your nieces to it because mm. one of Ro Roger Ebert's most famous reviews, I think, is his review of E.T. that he wrote to his two grandkids mm. um, that were four and seven when they saw it. So he did a, I think he did a normal review in 82, and then later when he added it to his Great Movies collection, he wrote a oh, unique okay. kind of creative review that was like a letter to his grandkids. And he had seen the movie so many times, he kind of said, I kept one eye on the screen and one eye on them and watched their reactions to certain scenes. And how they saw everything the way a child would see it. And that's how the movie is. Like the movie is largely from the point of view, right. either from E.T. or Elliot, who, which sounds like E.T. You know, Elliot mm -hmm. is the closest name you can get to E.T. And like, and it really is. I mean, it's interesting because I think one of the brilliant sort of aspects of the movie is it really is kind of for kids and from a kid's point of view. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's such great filmmaking. Anybody of any age, you know, would enjoy it. But 
so much of it is kind of like how would a kid experience this of having you know an encounter with an alien and hiding it from your parents and then befriending mm-hmm. it and you know so many of the scenes are not involving adults with an with an um, important with an important point though yeah it's it's for kids from the point of view of kids but it's not dumbed down right and that's yeah. that's something that drives me crazy because there are a lot of times I've come across movies and we don't have to get into all the details but i and then like if they have you know just scatological humor or just kind of you know stupid stupid jokes and and stuff yeah the excuse is oh well it's for kids it's not for adults mm. it's for kids and kids laugh at that and that's not et et right. and and, and you cuz you're right that the 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 pov is so cool and so effective in this movie right because you really mm-hmm. watch it and and I mean, they they do about everything short of having all the adults speak like Charlie Brown adult characters, yeah. right? <laughs> and and so, but I but I love how even though they're doing that, and even though they're they're making a conscious decision to to present it that way, they're not dumbing it down either. Because I right. think I think there's a tendency to to do that sometimes, and I think it undermines you know because oh my gosh, not that every movie has to be as good as ET, but holy cow, it's just such a so effective and just, you know, I mean, I, I would look at the little details, how the main guy who you, you basically think is the, the bad guy, just cause he's kind of presented in this very mysterious manner. But for, for most of the movie, all you see is the key ring on his, on his belt. Right. Mm-hmm. And every time you see his character, there's kind of this close up shot or you can hear yeah. them jingling. Sometimes you just hear them jingling as he's walking around and that's just kind of the signifier. Right. And that's just kind yeah. of like this cool little, filmmaking move that says that okay well i'm just going to establish this character and you're not going to know much about him but you're always going to know it's him and you're always going to know he's around yeah um and so there's just like lots of little stuff like that i yeah i love it the other the other reason i love it is obviously what happens is in a way when you almost don't show an adult's face as much or don't show things from their point of view or have big long lengthy discussions of the adults Mm -hmm. you're less likely to empathize empathize with them it's yeah. almost like you dehumanize them a little bit. You know, you're really focused on the kids and the alien, and then of course this psychic connection that that the the ET has with Elliot. Yeah. And and you know the mother ends up you know obviously being on his side, and mm-hmm. but like even even the conversations you hear sometimes it's snippets of conversations about what they're going to do or why they're looking for ET. You don't really get the full story a lot of times. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I love the details of the whole opening scene. Where yeah. you you just they have they have the camera low on on like the headlights coming in or they'll yeah. show the flashlight or the um, I Spielberg is kind of famous for this but you know like the scene in the forest where all you see are the, everyone's flashlights for a few yeah. seconds you yeah. know um, and uh, yeah it's it's really cool uh, I I yeah I love it um, no you know that was yeah that that stuff was just so many so many little things that were fun and and kind of like you said I mean. I, I was also kind of paying attention to my to my nieces, and it's like, okay, are they going to go for this? Because I know that kind of like kind of like you said with your son, I think some people, when whenever I've come across somebody who didn't really like the movie that much, it was because they couldn't really buy into ET as the alien, right? Just because they didn't mm-hmm. think it was realistic, or just thought it looks he looks too weird or something. And um, but uh, and this kind of leads into my next point. But one of my nieces actually said afterwards. And uh, I, I, I just, I love that she said this, but she just said, like, oh, it was like I was crying the whole time. Just, mm-hmm. you know, that it was because it's such a, such an emotional, well, really, really dramatic experience. 
I mean, and and it's kind of the Disney-fied character that is is adorable. I mean, he's mm. kind of I guess he's he's kind of ugly to be honest. But when you look at E.T., he's got the big eyes. Right. He's short right. and kind of stumpy and stocky, yeah. and he's got the the skinny neck and. It almost reminds you of like the robot from Short Circuit, number five, or even <laughs> Wally. He's almost kind of like a robot, but he's an organic alien creature, yeah, right? Yeah. But it's somebody that it's it's not an ugly in the sense of like menacing or threatening, right? Or uh, because of the eyes, hostile. I think I think that's really the big. The point. eyes really help. Mm-hmm. The big eyes really help. I mean, and, if he had... and for an animated, you know, animatronic, whatever it was. It's yeah. very effective. Like even watching the the old, you know, forty year old effects. Obviously, uh-huh. it's not. I mean, in some ways, I think it looks better than it would if they did it now, because if they did it now, they would just make it a CGI thing straight out, and it would probably look good, but you would be conscious of the idea that it was a CGI creation. Whereas in this movie, even if it's not exactly like bouncing off the walls and and stuff, it's still pretty darn, you know, articulated, you know, the way that it it moves, especially around the face. Um, But this this is my last... So do you remember seeing it as a kid? Yeah, I do. I, I saw it, I mean, I probably saw it not too long after it came out. I mean, it, it became the number one movie of all time for a, yeah. for oh, a yeah. short while, I think until, maybe until Jurassic Park, but it would have been number one or number two for like 10 years. Yeah. And um, and so I, I, I mean, and it was very well marketed. I remember right. reading once about the marketing, like one of the critics said there was virtually not a man, woman, nor child alive that didn't know of E.T.'s coming. <laughs> before it came out in May, and it actually was released in Cannes first, hmm. and then it had an official release in like late May or something of of 1982. So everyone knew about it. Spielberg was already a hit maker by then. Yeah. Oh, sure. Um, you know, he'd already had Jaws, Close Encounters, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So he, it was already like an event. He was an event yeah. filmmaker. But um, I don't remember what age I saw. I'm guessing I would have been six, seven, eight you know, pretty young. Yeah. I, no, it was, I, I, yeah. Yeah. I was, I came out in 82. I would have been almost five. So I probably okay. saw it not too long after that. Yeah. I, I have pretty clear. So how to put this? I don't have memories of physically watching it. Like there are some movies where I remember actually being in the theater watching it. Like I actually have specific mm-hmm. memories of, watching Raiders of the Lost Ark and being turned around in the chair to avoid the face melting scenes. Right. <laughs> and which, yeah. which we talked about before, but, yeah. uh, but with ET, what I remember was rejecting the film. Mm. And, and so I was, you know, probably about the same age. I must've, must've been somewhere six plus or minus at the time when I saw it. And it, as I've thought about this, and of course, rewatching it over the years, and especially just a couple of weeks ago, I've I've come to some interesting conclusions with it. And I think I think that what happened, because I remember when I watched it the first time, the reason I rejected it was because I thought, oh, that's a kids' movie. This is for kids, right? And I grew up, I I did not watch, other than kind of the periodic re-release in theaters for you know a month here or there. I didn't watch a lot of Disney movies. I didn't watch, you know, I we I would I think if Snow White was playing, you know, we'd go see that as a family. But but I mean I grew up watching the Star Wars movies and Raiders of the Lost Ark and you know, not necessarily adult adult movies. Like I wasn't watching a bunch of you know, I wasn't watching Terminator or Predator or anything like that, but but I was definitely watching more kind of grown up 
type action mm. movies from a young age. And so, so I think when I saw E.T., I think part of it was I just thought, oh, well, this is obviously for little kids because it's cute and, you know, Elliot's just this little boy. And uh, I think it was actually, if I, if I remember correctly, I think I was actually the age of Gertie, of Drew Barrymore. Um, I mean, I, I saw the movie through Elliot's eyes, which was intentional, like, was, like you mentioned. But, uh, but I think I was actually about the age of, of Drew Barrymore. And, um, and I just kind of perceived that, oh, well, this, this movie is for kids. But I think even deeper than that, and this, this is what I find interesting now, is that I think one of the things that I rejected was th- that it was so emotional. Like, it, it is such a... The, the emotional highs and lows of that movie... And just kind of like I say when my when my niece described it, just like I was just crying the whole time because it's this really very powerful, you know. I mean, yeah. I, I I don't imagine anybody's gonna be listening to this who isn't already familiar, hasn't seen the movie. But you know, towards the end of the movie, there's there's a lot of kind of life and death type stuff mm-hmm. going on, and these really really sweeping changes in the in the plot and the story, and and really really touching moments that are just you know you you combine them with that with that John Williams score. And as much as I love, you know, the Star Wars movies and Raiders of the Lost Ark and all this other stuff, I don't think that they're quite at the same level as E.T. in terms of really making that kind of a, a kind of an emotional, realistic mm-hmm. connection. Right. Because, I mean, I think I think the most dramatic of the, the Star Wars finales has got to be Empire Strikes Back. Right. I mean, that's the most melodramatic, you know, kind of the painful thing but but even that is okay well i'm this is outer space and these are imaginary characters where et just feels so so real right and so Mm -hmm. so genuine and uh i i hadn't really thought about that too much until i just watched this last watched it this last time but but i kind of wonder if if little you know six-year-old josh was like this movie is making Too me cynical. get the feels and I don't like it. Oh, <laughs> you know, I know. I'm surprised I'm not, that you'd be thinking I'm as a tough. I'm a big kid. I'm a big boy. <laughs> this movie's for kids and you're sick. Like, well, no, that's but that's just... it. No. And that's really what it was. <laughs> that that's genuinely how I felt was, yeah. that, uh, you know, this is for little kids. This is, this is not, you know, when's, when's the next Indiana Jones movie? I want to see that. But um, yeah, that's, I that's mean, why I, guess... I said, I don't, I don't remember. I don't know if you had, it, if you remembered it, anything lo- like that when you saw no, it as a child, but some of my specific memories, and, and it's almost like because, and maybe I was just disturbed because by this time I had identified with ET as a character that was worth saving and was a friend to Elliot. But when he's, I think it's when they bike up into the. Um, I remember ET being like in a stream, like half dead. Yeah, and and they have to find him and wrap him up and take right. him home. And I remember just feeling so bad for him, like like. Oh, oh it's deserved this. terrifying. And yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, and he's because his skin's like, all turning white. You know, it's kind of normally white. that kind of brown, brown orange, right. and it's turning he's got white. This pallor, and he looks like he's not going to last. And then, yeah, I can't remember if it's later in the movie, but when both ET and Elliot are struggling, you know, mm-hmm. and hooked up to those machines, he can barely breathe. And um, yeah, I think it's probably pretty traumatic for for any kid, you know, yeah. to watch that and. It's not, and you know, and luckily things turn out fine. So it's not like a horrible ending or anything that, that <laughs> really probably a kid shouldn't see in that mm-hmm. kind of a movie. But yeah, it was definitely a more emotionally charged movie than just the fun kind of run and gun style of a Raiders of the Lost Ark type of yeah, movie. Yeah, right, um, right. So. Well, and I think that uh, I, I, I know that part of, 
you know, I, I'm not sure to what extent, but I know that part of the either the inspiration behind or one of the kind of the themes of the movie is is coping with divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's now this this was not the one. So so as I understand it, the story goes that that Temple of Doom was written and produced while Spielberg and, and George Lucas were both going through divorces. Um, mm-hmm. But I think E.T. was was meant to be kind of a response to. Uh, you know the theme and the idea of divorce, and of course, if you watch it as an adult, it's much more clear that you know the mom is dealing with the recent separation from the dad, and the dad's off with some new girlfriend in in Mexico, and and so those are, there are those little beats, those little things that happen in the background that mm-hmm. I don't think you pay as close attention to when you're a kid, but yeah, there's just there's just some real heavy kind of real world themes in there, and uh, it, I think it makes oh, yeah. the movie really good. It definitely does. I remember the scene where they're. I think where Elliot talks about the dad being off in Mexico with the girlfriend and it upsets the mom so much that the brother gets mad at Elliot. Yeah. You know, oh, like yeah. He's, he's sort of the surrogate father. He's the protector for the mom now. And because the like, dad apparently like has been gone for a while. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. yeah, this is something that uh, Spielberg dealt with early on in his movies and kind of shied away from it later. In fact, I've heard him speak about how you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which came out five years before E.T., right. his dad just kind of goes crazy <laughs> and leaves his family to go pursue this weird vision he's having, right? Uh-huh. Of, and and he kind of said, I, Spielberg, when he looked back on the movie, he said, I'd never make a movie like that again. I'd never make a movie uh, yeah, where a dad I've leaves his family. I've heard that as well. Yeah. Um, and, and so E.T. is interesting because it's all about, even though it does deal with that difficult theme of divorce, it mo- it actually is more about reconnections and mm-hmm. even with E.T. and his own mom, right? Like, I mean, there's there's a connection there by the end of the movie and and uh, E.T. Uh, Elliot gets closer to his mom throughout mm-hmm. the whole ordeal. And so um, but yeah, it's it it does deal with that. And maybe as a kid, I don't know, maybe some kids who were going through a divorce would notice that more watching the movie. I didn't Probably. remember yeah. that when I first saw the movie, you know, it was more focused on this E.T. How, right. how would Elliot and E.T deal with each other you know right right um, but yeah nice. it's a it's great i i recommend it i mean it's it's a four-star movie for me and yeah well no yeah. and like i said i i think that you know while while watching it the other day i think i officially said okay well this has got to be in my you know i don't know if it's top 10 top, top 20 whatever but it's it's up there. It's up there. It's, yeah. it's a big one now. Um, well, if we ever do a Spielberg list, you could probably rank it on where you think yeah. it goes. Because I think probably both of us have seen, we're not completists, but we've probably seen most, mm-hmm. we're close to most of the Spielberg yeah. movies. So. Yeah, I think there's only a couple um, that I haven't. Yeah. Well, Mel, I, we'll I, have to do that. That would be fun. Yeah. Nice. I mean, listeners of this podcast would probably know what my number one is, but I don't know what <laughs> would be like two and three and four. Right, right. So, well, yeah. so uh, so anyway, even if you can't make it to see it in IMAX for the 40th anniversary, I would we I think both of it sounds like both of us would definitely recommend a, a viewing at home or another time. Um, mm-hmm. And then, like I said, I I think that they're going to be doing this for some other movies, at least uh, Wrath of Khan. So so maybe we can uh, cover some of that. Um, in the meantime, uh, I think it's high time that we uh, put a little Utah in the Utah film pod, and so. I thought we'd bring back a feature that uh, Danny and I had kind of tinkered around with a little bit earlier, and I think we kind of got away from just just for the sake of other subjects. Um, mm. But uh, we want to feature one Utah-related film, you know, and I think I think this can 
be interpreted a lot of different ways. I and mean, it could be produced or made by somebody from Utah. It could be made in Utah. It could be about Utah. Um, just some kind of a clear Utah connection. And so, uh, so Mark, what uh, what did you come up with for our the, the Utah feature for this episode of the Utah Film Pod? Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little bait and switch here. If I were to tell you about a movie that is set in a high school, at least partially, and was filmed in Utah, what would be the first movie that would come to your mind? Well, I think one of the biggest ones right now would probably be High School Musical, right? Because oh, all okay. those film there. You're right. You're right. I thought yeah. I, I forgot to add this. 1980s. Okay. 1980s. Right. Yeah. I, I... So the movie that I was thinking of, and I'm, this is not the one I'm going to feature, but this is what most people think of, is Footloose. Um, oh. And yeah. Right. Right. And so that's one that is kind of the more commonly known 1980s teen, you know, yeah. high school movie that was shot in Utah. The one that I want to talk about today because it's just sort of an underrated gem. Um, not very many people know about it. I brought it up to people before and a lot of people haven't even heard of it. It's called Three O'Clock High. Okay. It came out in 1987. It was filmed in Ogden High School, um, whereas I believe Footloose was at Lehigh High School. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really, it's an interesting movie because it doesn't really have any stars in it. There's some supporting characters like Philip Baker Hall and Jeffrey Tambor who are, even Paul Feig, who is a film director now, is okay. kind of a, has just a, he's kind of an extra but um it's really funny and what kind of got me thinking about this movie again is i was listening to a, a pod a while ago where uh quentin tarantino was talking about a, a, a movies from the 80s that he liked and they were specifically doing 1987 and he brought this movie up which just kind of surprised me just kind of shocked me out of the blue because he he hates the 80s he often says it's like the worst decade for movies and is not a fan, but this was one that he liked because it kind of delivered on its premise. And 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 I'll tell you, I'll tell you the plot. What happens is there's this guy who's kind of a sh shy, wimpy uh, high schooler who who's who works for the school newspaper. His name's Jerry. He goes to school, and the rumor is there's a new kid in school who's kind of a, a juvenile delinquent who was transferred from another high school, and this is his first day in the school that he's going to. Um, which I can't remember what it's called, but it's set, you know, it's in Ogden High School is where they filmed it. And so his uh, journalism professor says, hey, why don't you go meet the new kid and, and, we'll, and do a story on him, do a feature on him. So he said, okay. And so he meets with the guy and through a series of kind of blundering misstatements, completely offends him. And he is a bully. He's a big, tough, kind of has that long hair, almost, almost shoulder length hair. And... Um, and and the guy is so offended that he basically Jerry withdraws the the request to like drop write up a feature on him, and he like touches him on the shoulder and says like let's forget this whole thing, and once he touches him, the guy just goes berserk and he says nobody touches me, you know we're gonna fight <laughs> three o'clock today, we're gonna have a fight, and so the whole rest of the movie, and and it's weird because it it is a comedy. I mean that's kind of its first thing, but it's got. A little bit, of, it's a little bit of some darker elements in some of the little um, ways that Jerry tries to get out of this fight. Things that he does, where he like will steal money, try to enlist someone else to beat the guy up, try to frame him. I mean, he does all these things that you, whatever you could do in six hours, that's somewhat believable in an '80s high school movie. 
to try to get out of fighting this bully. Um, and I, I don't want to spoil it, but it does, it does deliver on, on the title, you know, the, the fight is not avoided. Um, and, and so it's really, it's funny and it's, it's kind of weird at, at moments. I remember watching it with my friend Chad and he just laughed because so many of the things are just like, that keep happening, just almost bad luck yeah. coincidences and turns of events that keep happening to Jerry or it make him just make, he's a really kind of sad, sad character. And then he kind of finds his, finds his strength and finds some courage. Um, but it's pretty funny and uh, it's, it's really well done. It's kind of a movie that didn't do well when it came out. Critically, it didn't do well. Yeah. Um, Ebert, it was a one-star review. I, oh, I didn't wow. know that until today because I looked. I was like, I wonder what Ebert thought. Um, a lot of critics didn't like it, and it got sort of reappraised later and sort of reappreciated to a higher degree than it was when it came out. But, mm -hmm. I mean, it cost $5 million to make, and it didn't even make that. I think it made $3.5 at the box office. Um, so it just never became like a – it never found traction. Yeah. Um, the director didn't go on to do a lot of stuff. He ended up directing music videos for most of his career, like Rattle and Hum and a lot of some oh, wow. famous music videos, U2 movie, um, did a couple other feature movies, but maybe one or two others. And the main actor in it was, that was his only like starring role. Hmm. Um, he was one of the bullies in Back to the Future. Oh, okay. Uh, the guy with the 3D glasses. Um, <laughs> He was that in a guy. couple other movies like that. I don't know if you remember. He hardly has any lines in Back to the Future. He's also in Back to the Future too, um, but he—he's the main. He's Jerry, Jerry Mitchell. Okay. You okay. know, the main character. It's kind of funny. I wonder if Jerry. It's probably a coincidence, but I was thinking of Jerry Lundegaard from Fargo, who's also sort of a oh. wimpy character that tries to do things he probably shouldn't. But anyways, <laughs> but it's like um, it's, a, it's, it's great, interesting illusions yeah. there or some yeah so the utah parallels. connection is is really the ogden high school yeah. setting um it's you know which is not... great i mean if you if you haven't seen ogden high yeah. i mean it's a great looking building it's a very it's kind of one of those old kind of classic you know I, I assume it still looks that way too many high schools including my own have been you know they've, they've built additions on and they kind of changed things substantially but last time i drove by ogden high it it looks very yeah. gothic right i mean it's just kind of kind of cool and it's got little spires and yeah and, uh, yeah it's so yeah i can, I can see why they chose older. i haven't seen the movie but i can see why they chose that location i i don't even know what it's on but you should you should get a chance to see it it's funny when you said it was it's high time uh, to to put a little utah in the utah film pod i was thinking of the movie high noon maybe yeah. when you said high time i thought high noon and and three o'clock high and high noon have similarities. I was going to say, I'm sure know. that's what they were alluding to with it. I, I think they kind of were. I mean, High Noon, uh, the, the main character, of course, yeah. is much more brave and he's almost looking forward in a reluctant way, but he's going to defend the town and try to enlist the help of others mm -hmm. who just won't help him. But it's really the, a similar movie in the sense that from the very beginning of the movie, you know that it's building toward this climactic showdown. Yeah, and what's going to happen? There, that's kind of the real like uh, suspense is really what's going to happen to to get there between now and then, and and how does it influence the final event? And that's that's of course a classic. I remember watching that in a film class I took at Utah State, and uh, that came out in 1952 and was like immediately inducted into the library. I think it was the Library of Congress started their mm. uh, film preservation, and that was one of okay. the first 25 movies shown. 
So I'm not trying to say three o'clock high is, is on, is on par to, on, on par with high noon, but there's definitely some similarities, right? Nice, nice. <laughs> no, that's cool. I, I I've heard I've I heard that movie referenced multiple times, and and so I think that needs to be one that I I should uh, I should probably take a look at that one. So good, good which choice. One, which one, high noon or three o'clock? Uh, actually, both. Honestly, <laughs> in fact, I you know I keep thinking. I, I know that there's an endless number of options that we could we could use for kind of themed episodes, mm -hmm. but at some point I would love to get into westerns just because yeah. I I don't feel like I have seen a lot of westerns, but I've seen enough to really love certain things about the genre and 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 some real I mean some of my favorite movies and some of my kind of most fond movie watching memories, you know, or, or I, I think there's something really special about the Western genre. And of course, I think that a big part of that it ties into the fact that I have now spent a lot of recent years visiting Monument Valley, which has such mm. uh, oh, yeah. specific ties to, to the Western genre and John Wayne and, uh, and all that kind of thing. So yeah, maybe we'll have to put that one on the list we, and uh, we should. In, in preparation, I'll have to watch High Noon. It's it's funny you mentioned that about being interested in westerns because I just saw for the first time the Treasure of the Sierra Madre last week. Okay, okay. I think it was last week, and it was a movie I, I bought like a year ago, so I had the DVD, and I'd always kind of wanted to see it. But then recently, I started reading about how Paul Thomas Anderson was so influenced by that movie while making uh, There Will Be Blood, and even okay. Daniel Day Lewis oh, basing wow. a, a little bit of his character on 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 that movie. And it's not as similar as I thought when I watched it. I can see the, I can see where there is the influence, but it's not yeah. really that similar of a of a plot line. Mm. Um, I mean, it's about greed in in the American West and what people will do for for money and how they'll start to be distrustful and almost go insane with distrust of others to to hold on to their money. And so there are a lot of similar themes in it, but this is. Um, I, it's it's a great one. It's a Humphrey Bogart is is the main right character it's, in it. You know, that's another one and, that I've heard of but haven't seen. Okay, yeah, yeah. it's he. Uh, it's it's interesting because it's one of those where I think it's one of the all time great performances, um, and he wasn't even nominated for it. Oh, really? Yeah, I kind of feel like he's almost like a Harrison Ford type character where okay. they're really in a lot of. Lots of great performances, lots of great movies, but yeah. really not recognized, um, you know, for for their acting. Like Harrison Ford's almost never nominated, and I, I don't think he cares at all, like one bit. No, probably not. Yeah, but uh, but you know, Humphrey Bogart did end up winning for for the African Queen, but I mean, it took almost to the end of his career. But yeah, it was. Uh, well, I, I would recommend that The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Okay, I mean, I've seen I've seen Casablanca. I don't think I've seen um, Maltese Falcon, mm. but uh, no. And just on that note, I have to admit that one of my, I guess one of my deep and abiding fears as, as a movie critic, you know, work, working in any kind of a official or professional capacity is that, you know, I fully understand and have seen and have experienced personally how, the first time you see something, a lot of times people don't appreciate it. And and mm -hmm. the first time you see somebody's work a few different times, you don't appreciate it. Just like with 
you know, the way you're describing with Bogart and with, with Harrison Ford, sometimes it's easier to appreciate them more in retrospect than in the moment. Yeah. And, and, and I'll tell you, like, that's, that's one of the things that drives me crazy is this feeling like, oh, I don't want to be one of those guys that, that just craps all over some movie that turns out to be a classic. And then 20 years mm-hmm. down the road, I realize how important it was and how good it was. And, and I don't yeah. know, cause I mean, there, there are definitely movies. Like I don't, I don't know that I've ever flipped the switch entirely from, oh, this is a crap movie to this is really great, but yeah. I've definitely appreciated movies more upon, you know, a second watch or, or seeing them a little more down the line. And there have also been movies that I was really blown away by initially that once the dust settled, I kind of realized, yeah, I guess that wasn't really that up to much, you know, I in kind of it. Yeah. What the gloss kind of wears off and you realize that, oh, it was a lot of, a lot of flash and a lot of sizzle, but not a whole lot of substance, you know, but yeah, uh, so, sometimes you can get caught up in the craze and then look back and be like, wow, we really were, everyone was excited about this movie and it was just okay. Maybe. Yeah. Or yeah. you just miss something. And, and I, I'm usually, I, I guess I'm not afraid to, you know, if there's a movie, I just, I just doesn't speak to me and I, it does speak to everyone else, you know, maybe I'll give it a second chance, but I don't really care to like, that's how I am with the big Lebowski or yeah, the Grand Budapest hotel, or there are certain movies, even by great directors, like some of the greatest directors living mm-hmm. today where I'm like, well, it definitely doesn't live up to their other works. I mean, maybe it's still better than the average movie or something, but well, so, um, okay. So here's a yeah. question for you. So can you think of any specific movies? And you've already mentioned like Lebowski and stuff, but, can you think of a specific movie that is generally held to be a a great movie or just beloved, celebrated, whatever you want to call it, but you just don't buy it or you just don't get it. You don't agree, whatever, you know, you don't, you know what I mean? Like, are there any movies that you just, you know, people could tell me this is this fantastic movie. I've tried to see it a few times. I just don't buy it. I just don't get it. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know what I'm missing here. Does, does, have you ever had that experience? Yeah. Um, I have to think of one. Like, what do you, do you have one in mind? I was going to say, I can, I can give you an example and maybe give you kind of a chance to think of it rather than just kind of put you on the spot. Yeah. Um, because, like, I remember hearing so much about Annie Hall and and I'm mm. you know just by way of introduction I'm a, I, I'm a generally pretty big Woody Allen fan. Um, I especially love his uh, his humorous prose from kind of early in his career when he was writing essays for the New Yorker. Um, in high school, I really got into reading a lot of his stuff, and and his his humor style, his his written humor style is really incredible and reflected in kind of his earlier movies like Bananas and Take the Money and Run. But. Uh, I kept hearing about how great Annie Hall was. And I think it was a, the, the movie that actually won best picture of the year that Star Wars came out. And so it was kind of, oh, mm-hmm. you know, how come Star Wars got beat, you know? And, um, but the first two or three times I tried to watch Annie Hall, I just kind of thought, man, you know, I really like a lot of Woody Allen's movies, but this one, I'm just not, I just don't see the, you know, what's yeah. the big deal, you know? And it wasn't, it wasn't that it was bad or that I just thought that, oh, this is terrible. I can't believe this. It just, I just wasn't grasping what it was about the movie that separated it from his others and made it such a celebrated and, and beloved, you know, because I, I would probably, I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking about this now. So it's just kind of on the top of my head, but 
I don't know how many other Woody Allen movies would be rated above Annie Hall. Like that's the one that really seems to be the most celebrated. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely not my favorite Woody Allen movie. And like I said, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it a a bad movie by any means. But it's one of the ones that I had a I've had a tough time appreciating to the level that that other people seem to appreciate it. And, yeah, and I don't know. I don't know if that's something that's just just me, or if you've had kind of the similar experience. I mean, I I, I, I don't I want to like... be in agreement with everybody all the time. I don't, you know, right. I don't want to feel like I need to be in lockstep with everybody's opinion on stuff. But but there are some times where you just kind of think, what am I missing here? Because I just I just don't feel like I'm seeing something that everybody seems to be seeing. Yeah, I for me, I I don't know if I have enough Woody Allen's to really talk about it. I've probably seen seven or eight or nine, and I I. I, th- I remember liking it, um, and I, I think one thing I did like about it is he's, he broke a lot of rules in that movie. Um, mm. Like, he, I remember him talking to the camera, like breaking the fourth wall yeah. and just talking to the camera, and there's a little cartoon. There's, there's the part where he, like, he's so Jewish, it shows him as if he's got, like, a yarmulke and earlocks, like, at the dinner, at the family dinner, and, but it's sort of a fantasy scene yeah. for a second, yeah. and... There's a cartoon and there's, so there's certain things in there where it sort of weaves this love story throughout. Um, I don't know. I almost feel like in some ways it's the quintessential Woody Allen. Like he's, he's this neurotic, you know, kind of egotistical, but also self-loathing, you know, (laughs) New Yorker who's funny, but also um, just, you know, finds problems in love and, and I guess kind of later influenced a little bit George's character um, in <laughs> Seinfeld. In fact, George talks about how when he read for the character, he thought he was doing Woody Allen. It took him into several seasons of Seinfeld to realize he was it was really Larry David, but he, he did. I remember watching a like a documentary or whatever where he's George is doing a Woody Allen impression as if he's auditioning for George in Seinfeld. Yeah. I mean, Jason yeah. Alexander. Well, in his, I mean, I think those but, early episodes, I think it, that's even a much more it clear probably connection, is. right? Yeah. I mean, as, yeah. as I recall, that first season of Seinfeld is almost kind of jarring because compared to what it became in terms it of became. Its, its rhythm and its its pacing and just kind of the interpretation with all the, the interweaving subplots and stuff that it's almost, it's almost kind of stale to watch some of those early episodes because they're really just, I mean, right. that's when the show really was about nothing. You know? Yeah. But but going back to Annie Hall, I liked it. I guess I guess I mean in terms of winning the Oscar for Best Picture, I, yeah, you could probably say it's overrated because it's you know all the, probably all the New York film critics that wanted to award it when you had you had Star Wars and it seems like there was another big movie that came out that year. But maybe I'm just thinking of Star Wars. Um, but yeah, so that was that's one. I think for me, I mean as far as classic movies that are probably overrated or that just I, I just don't just, love that much. I would say Chinatown is one. Okay. I remember reading a lot about that. It's like Polanski's magnum opus. It's an important movie, uh-huh. you know, Jack Nicholson. And it was just, um, it was just okay. And yeah. I, I don't know, maybe I, maybe if I watched it again, I'd really love it. We can, um, we always I, say that, right? Like maybe I need I to watch know. it one more time. Maybe but I need, then, maybe I missed it. So why not? Yeah. If you didn't like it, I mean, watch something new and then, uh, yeah. My Fair Lady is another one. Okay, we, okay. We just, I just saw that for the first time like a year or a year and a half ago with Holly because it was on Netflix. And 
and I mean, it has some good songs, and we, you know, some of the classic songs. But gosh, the relationship between Henry Higgins and uh, oh, what's her name, Eliza Doolittle. Eliza Doolittle, yeah. He is just so verbally abusive to her, and I guess that's the way it was at the time. You know, the yeah. movie was 1963, and it's about the seems like it was about the 20s or something. Okay. But I mean, by the end of the movie, he's he's almost blaming her for making her fall in love with him and he's mad at himself and he's he's like it, it's just really weird like there's a good 15 or 20 minute scene where he's just berating her and she's kind of taking it and um and then it kind of ends with them just standing there and i guess supposedly they'd fall they'd fallen in love by that time and it was just <laughs> weird it was really weird and so i don't know right maybe i just didn't get it um but that was another best picture winner um okay just like annie hall chinatown wasn't because it came out the same year as Godfather 2. But oh. and then also, I mean, I almost this is almost too sacred to mention, but Citizen Kane. Okay. It's not like a great rewatchable for me. I mean, I think I appreciated all of the filmmaking innovation and technique that yeah. it pioneered, which, right. which is one reason why so many critics loved it. And it made the top uh, greatest movie of all time on the sight and sound list that comes out every ten years. And then finally, Vertigo overtook it. Okay. Um, the 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 Jimmy Stewart uh, Hitchcock movie yeah, right. from 1958, but but I I don't know I I I did like Citizen Kane and I I I I'm like there were so many things in it that were just groundbreaking, editing montages and things like that. Um, but it's not like really a highly entertaining movie. And I mean, yeah. it's 1941 too. I mean, sometimes when I talk to people about old movies, I'm like, hey, have you ever seen a movie from 30s or 40s? And it's like. Oh, Wizard of Oz. Anything else? No. Nope. You know, like nope. most most people, most average moviegoers really haven't seen more than one or two movies before like 1955 or 60, you know. Or even. So, yeah, yeah maybe even later. I don't know. You know, right. we're. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. No. And uh, it's, it's, well, I guess depending on who you spoke to, it could be considered a classic. But this is, this is more of kind of a local. I, I would put this more on a par with your, with your experience with Big Lebowski, but I've, I've never embraced the Princess Bride. I, oh. uh, and and unlike almost every one of my peers, you know, I've, I mm-hmm. I don't know that I've ever really come across anybody that I can re- remember who didn't like Princess Bride, and and most of them just kind of. It almost, I, it, for a while, I kind of had this mental short list of, you know, if you grew up in Utah in the 1980s, there were certain movies, there was a short list of movies that you were going to be familiar with and that you were going to love, right? And, mm-hmm. and for, a lot of, for a lot of people, it seems like Princess Bride's on that list. I, I would venture to say that I might enjoy it a lot more if I were to see it now, especially if I were to have kind of, you know, watch it with my nieces type thing. Um, but uh, I remember at the time, just not really jiving with the the comedy style of it, um, but I think the bigger problem was that because it was so well known and so beloved, it was also one of those movies that that kids and people would quote to each other all the time, right? Yeah. And so, so even though I hadn't seen the movie, I knew all of the big one-liners, right? And when all of your friends are always doing the one-liners and you haven't seen the movie, it gets a little annoying after a while. And so by the time I actually saw the movie, I think it had kind of pulled the rug out from it a little bit. 
And, and I remember kind of, you know, and maybe, maybe this is kind of similar to my rejection of ET, but I remember just kind of feeling like, Oh, this is stupid. This is people just shut up (laughs) about this movie. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and so, so as a consequence, I just never really, never really embraced Princess Bride. And, and I remember feeling infinitely grateful, uh, that, that I managed to see Monty Python on the Holy Grail before my friends did so that I didn't have to be inundated with a bunch of bad British accents oh. as they would quote that one over and over because that's that was one of the other ones that just like, you know, constantly being quoted and referenced. And, and I think that if I had had the similar experience, oh my gosh, if I, my my life would not be the same if I didn't have Monty Python in it. So I'm, I'm grateful that, <laughs> that I that's didn't funny. have the same experience. <laughs> But, yeah. uh, but yeah, so in fact, I think I actually mentioned to one of my nieces a while back, I said, Hey, you know, have you ever watched princess bride? And to my surprise, she was just kind of like, yeah, it was okay. It, yeah. Wasn't really like, mm-hmm. I don't think she disliked it, but because I was going to offer, I was going to say, if you haven't seen it, then maybe I should watch it with you because I can kind of, you know, how you have a different experience with a movie. If you're with somebody who is seeing it for the first time or is maybe more yeah. of, kind of a target audience, you can kind of see it through their eyes and. So, so I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever wind up uh, reclaiming that one, but uh, Princess I, Bride, I, Annie Hall, I guess those are some, yeah. of my, some of my weak spots. I liked Princess Bride. I mean, I guess it's not a all-time beloved classic for me personally, but I, I remember liking it. I, I remember my theater experience of seeing that, um, you know, and it's, that was, I guess I would have been around 10 or 11. That was probably a good age for it. And yeah, then it become, I kind of feel like it became that, almost Utah cultural zeitgeist right. movie that everyone quotes. And then That's maybe I mean. it was over, overtaken by Napoleon Dynamite, like in the 2000s. Because yeah. then Napoleon Dynamite was sort of that movie where everybody was quoting it and it was funny. And yeah. maybe there are kids now that are like, oh, Napoleon Dynamite, it's not, <laughs> it's overrated. Well, it's not so that good, you know. If, believe it or not, <laughs> believe it or not, um, I, I loved Napoleon Dynamite so much when it first came out. And you know, see it, saw it a couple times in the theaters and all this, and I think I went, mm-hmm. you know wound up getting the DVD. I, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, well, and it, it came out like right right around the time I finished at Utah State, so it was when we were. I don't think yeah, I actually it reviewed 04. it for the Statesman, but um, but anyway, uh, I I got the sense like, okay, this is becoming kind of a popular thing, and I don't want to burn myself out on this. I don't want to I don't want to ruin this movie by watching it too many times, or and, and so I actually made a conscious decision not to watch it for, for a very long time, like over several years, just because I kind of wanted to preserve what I loved about it and what I enjoyed. And so, because it, you're right, it, it became this, it, there, there was very much a similar Princess Bride, Monty Python style, quirky obsession, you mm-hmm. know, with it that, uh, that I think can burn itself out if, if, uh, you know, if you if you hear a little too much of it, get a little get a little too sick of it. But uh, and that's that's yeah. a movie. You know, we could we could have an interesting discussion about Napoleon Dynamite. You know, maybe when we have a little more time in an episode, I because because I I really felt like I remember this. This is just the one thing I'll say about it. I remember being really shocked and disappointed to read. Although I wasn't, I guess I was half shocked and half not because. I remember reading the reviews in Entertainment Weekly, and they just despised it. They they thought oh. Napoleon Dynamite was the worst movie, and and there it was just kind of their their reviews were so pretentious and so yeah. kind of 
uppity critic, like the kind of stuff that gives critics bad names. And yeah. and what I what I realized was, you guys really don't understand this movie. Like you don't understand yeah. what's make what makes this funny. And the reason is. You didn't grow up in Utah and southeastern Idaho in the 1980s. <laughs> right. Because exactly. even, even though this isn't set in that time, that's what this movie's about. And, mm-hmm. and, and that behavior and that weird kind of culture. I mean, even, even growing up in, in suburban, you know, just north of Salt Lake, I wasn't in rural Idaho, but I felt like I knew that school and, and that yeah. student body and that experience. And, and I think that if you don't have that uh, an already bizarre movie is going to be that much more inaccessible and kind of confusing yeah oh yeah i i think it's such a great the the deadpan humor of it and just the little details he gets right because i grew i did grow up in logan i grew up about 40 minutes south of preston we had tater tots for lunch i mean some people don't even know what those are and I mean, I didn't ever put them those, in my those pocket. Poor, <laughs> de- depraved. <laughs> well, I mean, you didn't have to live in Idaho to get tater tots for lunch. No, but I love that it's I in Idaho, them. where they were it's great. Like, um, but there, I, there I never stuffed so many... them in my pocket. Right, that's what I said. Yeah, but there's so many little <laughs> details that just it's just like a knowing, like winking glance at his local audience, his sure. Utah oh, yeah. audience. And so I agree with you. I remember reading Ebert's review. I always bring him up. I probably need to stop. I used to like <laughs> worship him. And it was a one-star review. He didn't get it either. He hated it. It might have been one and a half, but it was no more than one and a half. And, okay. and it's like, why are you crapping all over this little independent filmmaker's first film from Utah? A lot of critics, they're proud to like champion smaller films, right? Yeah. yeah. And maybe by then it was a hit. So it's like, oh, whatever. I mean, it, it made like $45 right. million dollars and the budget was probably not even a million I don't remember but it was uh-huh. it was a very high profit margin movie um, I mean it led to him being able to make a bunch of big budget movies like yeah. masterminds which I watched again a few weeks ago yeah um, but yeah it was uh, that was that was a great one yeah um, but yeah well was, look at that sorry. look at that we got a twofer we have two featured Kay. Utah movies in this episode not just one yes <laughs> and 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 by the way before you uh, but anyone is dissuaded from seeing a Woody Allen movie. I, I agree. If you're not going to see, if, if Annie Hall is not your taste, I recommend Midnight in Paris. Oh, my gosh. That's a great movie. Oh. I love Crimes and Misdemeanors. Um, even though almost, you know half of Woody Allen movies are about adultery, or maybe most of them, <laughs> that, then that's another one. There are, there are some excellent. consistent themes. <laughs> There's consistent themes in his movies. I mean, so many of them are about adultery and infidelity. He's obsessed with it. But I, I love the way that Crimes and Misdemeanors handles mm-hmm. it. And uh, so that's another one. And then, yeah. Blue, Sma- Blue Jasmine. I mean, I and I really loved, like, Take the Money and Run, Bananas, even Sleeper. Like, a lot of those early, yeah. early movies. And then I, I want to say that you mentioned in another episode, um, the opening sequence to Manhattan mm-hmm. is just one of the most gorgeous. I just, I rewatched it the other night. I didn't even get through the whole movie. I just watched, like, the first... 10, 15 yeah. minutes. Isn't that, that the one with the Gershwin music? Yeah. 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 It's it's all yeah. black and white. It's just different different clips of, mm-hmm. you know, around pretty much just well Manhattan. Yeah. And wow, just I mean, if you if you want to have a quick 5 to 10 minute cinematic experience that will inspire you creatively yeah. and, and visually, mm-hmm. yeah. That's a that's a great one. But uh, oh yeah, cuz I and I, I guess that's just the thing is that 
I, I was kind of befuddled because I do like a lot of Woody Allen movies, but I didn't see why this one, you know. But anyway, we've we've already uh, that horse is already dead, and <laughs> in, in no further need of beating. And uh, I don't know. We're we're up over an hour, so maybe we ought to let let the people go. But uh, before we go, um, I have some news to touch on that that Danny, when she returns with our next episode, is going to have a little bit more detail. Uh, we've got some some good news. The uh, the Utah Film Pod, the Utah.Film website, uh, we're putting together a Patreon account. And uh, so you're going to be able to support our efforts and get some additional material, get access to additional material, including, I believe Danny said that uh, it'll involve uh, getting access to our new episodes earlier, um, among some other things we've got in mind. And Danny's going to go into a little bit more detail on that next time. Uh, so look forward to the new Patreon account. And in the meantime, uh, if you haven't already given us a a good positive rating on on iTunes or on uh, Spotify or on YouTube or wherever you are listening or now watching the Utah Film Pod. Please take some time to do so. Um, we'd love to get the great feedback. We'd love to build things up and uh, widen our audience. And if you got any thoughts for us along the way, got any suggestions? Uh, we've talked about doing discussions about westerns, and uh, of course, you know this is the Utah Film Pod. So if there's something Utah related you'd like to hear about. Uh, please take the time to drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. And in the meantime, maybe uh, you know find something out there to see. We we got some, we still there are a few options in the theaters right now. But uh, just because it's the August and September doldrums doesn't mean there aren't good things to watch and see around. And we'd love to hear from you. So take care. And we'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.